Our scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel uh, 9. And David said, is there anyone, thank you, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul who was named Ziba. And they called to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machar, in the the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machar and the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for your sake, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always and he paid homage and said what is your what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the, king, at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that you are sovereign, Father, that you are uh, a God of, of strength and power, Father, but we also recognize that that you hold our very hearts in your hand. So, Father, we pray that your hand would, would mold and shape our hearts here this morning, that we wouldn't just grow in our knowledge, Father, but we would grow in our affection for you, grow in our understanding of the gospel, but also uh, grow in our passion for it as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I learned a new term this week. Uh, They say you should learn something new every day. Well, I learned a new term this week, and it's a term called trolling. I don't know if you've ever heard of trolling before, but I'd never heard of trolling before. And to be honest, when I first heard the term, I thought of the the little mythical characters that live under bridges in stories. But apparently there's a verb called trolling that I learned about on a podcast that I listened to this week. I, I listened to This American Life, which is... I think uh, connected to NPR in Chicago or something along the lines of that. And they did a whole hour-long episode on this thing called trolling. Now, if you were like me and you don't know what it is, let me explain it to you. For every blog that is out there, every web article, or even every web page, there often are little sections at the bottom that are comment sections. 
Now, to be honest, the only blogs I ever look at are all about the Orioles. So I don't have a really expansive knowledge of blogs that are out there, but, but others do. And every blog has a comment section. So to, to be a troll or to be a troller is someone who fills up all these comments in the comment section. But what I didn't realize about it is how nasty people are in these comment sections. They are nasty with all sorts of kind of below the belt sort of comments that just tear people apart. They tear apart the the blog writers. They tear apart each other on these news feeds. And they are just incredibly nasty to one another. In the podcast, it interviewed someone who, who writes blogs for a living And she said that she has become so used to the nastiness that she's grown really callous to it. She doesn't even hear it anymore. And when she actually receives a kind word, it becomes incredibly remarkable. Well, the reality is that we live in a world where kindness is more the exception than it is the norm. Henry James famously said that that there are three things in human life that are important. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. This morning, we, we observe a story that's really all about kindness. But it shows us kindness in a much deeper and fuller way than maybe we are used to thinking of or used to expecting. And it's a story that involves this incredible character in the Old Testament named David. Who, If you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been looking at snapshots from the life of this incredible character, David. If you were with us last week, you noticed that David was in the wilderness. He was in a a wilderness period of his life in which he was really fleeing for his own safety and fleeing for his own life. And instead of that leading David to bitterness and resentment, it led him to do all sorts of unorthodox sorts of things. You see, when he was in this wilderness period, he recognized that it was God who had him in this period of his life. He recognized God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign purposes. So even in the wilderness, he chose opportunities to demonstrate unconventional grace to those people that God put in his path. We saw last week how he showed unconventional grace by sparing the life of King Saul, the very person that was fleeing after him. And if you fast forward through the book of Samuel in 1 Samuel 26, he has another opportunity to take Saul's life, but he spares him once again. But all the while, he continues to live in this wilderness. While he's in the wilderness, he falls in love with a woman named Abigail. They get married. David accrues to himself other wives as well. He even lives with the dreaded Philistines, the enemy of his people, for an entire year. Meanwhile, Saul, the other character, is really spinning out of control. There's a passage where it tells us that he consults a median or a necromancer, and he does all sorts of really interesting things that that brings about God's anger. So much so that at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan are both killed at the hands of the dreaded Philistines. 
But what this does is this now opens the path for David to become king. So the book of 2 Samuel opens up talking about how David ascends to the throne. But of course, he doesn't ascend to the throne without any sort of conflict. There's lots of conflict. In fact, he only becomes king in the southern part of the nation for a while. And then as the book of 2 Samuel goes on, he finally becomes king of the entire land. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells this beautiful story about how he and God enter a special and unique covenant with one another. Now up to this point, we've seen that David has been a remarkable character. We've seen him demonstrate an incredibly deep relationship with God. We've seen his passion for God and his passion for God's ways. We've seen him trust in the Lord in such a way that it translates into great courage to fight God's enemies. But he's also demonstrated great patience with God's plan and God's purpose. But now things have changed. Now, David, he's out of that wilderness period of his life. Now he has been enthroned above the nation. Now all the promises are being fulfilled. All of God's plans are coming to fruition. And the question becomes, what kind of man will David be now? What kind of king, what kind of man will he be now? In 2011, uh, Wired magazine... Uh, did an article. And the article was called, Why Power Corrupts. And the article started this way. It said, the news abounds with stories of powerful men behaving badly. It's a depressing yet predictable spectacle. Those in positions of power can't help but help themselves to the help. They scream at underlings and have sex with their secretaries. They assault hotel maids and sleep with the nanny. The question, of course, is what motivates this awful behavior? Why does power corrupt? Psychologists refer to this as the paradox of power. The very traits that helped leaders accumulate control in the first place all but disappear once they rise to power. Of course, we've all heard the the famous quote by Abraham Lincoln when he said that nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. So what we're going to do for the next two weeks is we're going to look at two snapshots of David as king. There's plenty of other snapshots that we could look at, but we want to look at two snapshots of David as king. One in which David shows immense kindness. The other, not so much. But we will see that when we come uh, next week. But this morning what I'd like to do is look at this incredible story of kindness. But it isn't just a story that talks about the kindness of David, but ultimately it points us, its readers, to the kindness of God in our lives as well. So this morning, really quickly, what I'd like to do is just look at four quick points about the kindness of God that we see in the kindness of David. The first thing we see is that the kindness of God seeks out its object. The kindness of God seeks out its object. As one of the first orders of business that David has when he ascends to the throne, 
is a is an order of business in which David seeks to show kindness. As we learned earlier, most kings, when they come to power, one of the first things that they do is they try to seek out others that were connected to the king that reigned before them. They try to seek out those others really to exterminate them, to end them, to take their lives, because they believed that if they allowed these people to live, then that could be a threat to their throne, that they could eventually rise up and claim the throne or usurp the throne. So when David comes to power, what he immediately does is he seeks out everyone who was connected to the house of Saul. But he sought them out not to get revenge, but instead to show kindness. He didn't wait for any requests for help. Instead, he searched them out and he learns about a a man named Mephibosheth who was a crippled son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. Meanwhile, Mephibosheth is in hiding. He is in a nothing town at the fringes of the kingdom in order to remain out of David's sight. He knows how this script plays out. So he sought to remain in hiding. But then one day his greatest fears are realized and a messenger comes to him and tells him that he has been found and that he has been called into the king's presence. No doubt on the journey to see David, on the journey to see the king, he must have feared for his very own life and the life of his son, Micah. He must have figured that as soon as they entered into David's presence, their life was about to end. So that when Mephibosheth finally gets to David's presence, he falls on the ground pleading for mercy, pleading to have his life spared and the life of his son spared. And then David says very quietly to him, Mephibosheth, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. You see, David sought out Mephibosheth in order to show him kindness. You know, the gospel story tells us something similar. It tells us that God, in his kindness, seeks us out to be objects of his kindness. If you look in the Old Testament scriptures, when Adam and Eve first sinned in that garden, it says that they immediately recognized their guilt and shame. So what they did is they went into hiding. And they would have stayed in hiding away from God's presence if not God had entered into the garden and began to seek them out. He came to even them in kindness and in grace. The scriptures tell us that you and I are just like Adam and Eve. We were just like Mephibosheth hiding in this nothing town of Lodabar. Well aware of our guilt and shame, you and I hide from God. We run for him. We want to escape his gaze. And by nature, due to our sin, we would never actively seek after God on our own. Instead, naturally, we choose to run in the opposite direction. We choose to run from him. But the good news of the gospel is that the kindness of God seeks us out. But we see something else about the kindness of God in this story. We see that the kindness of God is seasoned with grace. 
You see, David once again demonstrates unconventional grace. Most of the onlookers who were viewing this story would have been absolutely amazed at what David did for Mephibosheth. Instead of Mephibosheth being killed, as was the custom, he was instead blessed with the wealth of the kingdom. He would have an integral place in David's kingdom. He would dine at David's very table, an incredible honor in the ancient world. And to make David's kindness even more pronounced in our story, the author continues to remind us that Mephibosheth is crippled. He'd been crippled through a childhood accident that we learned earlier, and he would have to be, because of that, he would have to be carried everywhere he went. He would have to be intimately cared for by others. He couldn't sustain his own life on his own. Now, our culture is rather accommodating to those that that deal with handicaps. At least, it's much more accommodating than what David's culture would have been. If someone in David's culture was disabled, they would have been devalued by the society. Some would have believed that their disability was as a direct curse from God for some sort of infidelity on their part. So often those with disabilities would be left to live and survive in squalor, subject to the charity and mercy of other people. And this, no doubt, was the situation that Mephibosheth found himself in. Yet in our story, he is transferred from a place of squalor to a place at the king's table. When you read this story, you have to ask yourself, why would David do this? Why would he show such kindness? Why would he show such unconventional grace? And the good news is that he tells us. He says this, he says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You see, years before, David had made a promise to his friend Jonathan that David would care for all descendants that came from Jonathan. So the kindness of David was given to Mephibosheth based on Mephibosheth's relationship to his father, Jonathan. It had nothing to do with the fact that Mephibosheth had earned this favor or done anything to earn David's kindness. You know, the gospel story tells us something similar. It tells us that the kindness of God is also seasoned with grace. It tells us that the only way for sinners to receive that grace is to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the only way that Mephibosheth was allowed to sit at David's table was because of his relationship to Jonathan. And the truth is, the only way that you and I can sit at the ultimate king's table, the only way we can sit at God's table, is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. God's grace is given to us not because you and I earned it, not because we proved ourselves, but it is because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because we are clothed in his goodness and his righteousness. That is the only way we can gain entry to God's table. And we enter this relationship by trusting in Jesus through faith. 
But that's not the only thing we see in our story about the kindness of God. The third thing we see is that the kindness of God is eternal. The kindness of God is eternal. You know, when you think about it, Mephibosheth gets a really incredible deal in this story. He gets a perpetual place at the king's table. All the lands that belonged to his grandfather were now given to him. These would have been some of the finest lands of the kingdom. They would have been lands that were David's by right, but instead they are given to Mephibosheth. He's given Saul's servant, Ziba, and all his children to work this land that had been given to him. You see, Mephibosheth would have been given incredible wealth by virtue of the fact that he got to dine at David's table. But he is also given additional wealth through the yield of all this land and property that would come from it. It would be like you and I getting a million dollars and then the means to get more and more millions for the rest of our lives. See, this wasn't just peace of mind for Mephibosheth in this moment. This would mean a peace of mind for him and for his children for the rest of their lives. But the gospel story tells us that God's kindness to us is extravagant just like this. God's kindness to us isn't just for the moment. Instead, it carries on throughout all of eternity. You see, the word kindness that's used here in the Hebrew is the word hesed. I'm not pronouncing that probably right. But it means something much fuller than what we think of when we hear the word kindness. It has connotations of love that is loyal. It's unfailing kindness and devotion. It's love and affection that is steadfast based on a very powerful relationship. And that's the kind of kindness that God gives us. It is loyal love. It is unfailing. It is extravagant. And it is steadfast. There's another story later in 2 Samuel where it appears that Mephibosheth ends up playing both sides of the fence. It appears that he is kind of playing both sides of the fence in a way that betrays his loyalty to David. Yet even though Mephibosheth seems to be unfaithful, it does not forfeit his place at the king's table. You know, the reality is you and I forfeit God's love all the time. We betray him through our actions. We are unfaithful. Every day we walk away from him. But no matter how much we may rebel, no matter how much we may walk away, we will always have a place at his table. And the reason is because our place at that table is not based on our performance or our goodness. Instead, it is based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we see in this story that the kindness of God seeks us out. We've seen that the kindness of God has unconventional grace attached to it. We've seen that the kindness of God is eternal. But lastly, we see that the kindness of God gives birth to kindness to other people. The passage tells us about Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. 
It says, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You see, in that moment, Mephibosheth was overcome with gratitude. He's overcome at the fact that, yes, he's escaped death, but he's also overcome by the fact that he now has a place at the king's table. He has a position of a king's family, of the king's own son. You know, the reality is that God wants you and I to drink deeply of the gospel. He means for us to reflect on its greatness and its wonder in our lives, but he ultimately wants us to live lives of gratitude in response to that gospel. The kindness of God begets kindness to others. You know, it's easy for us to be kind to people that we like, kind to people that feed our ego, feed our ego or kind to, to people where we get kindness in return back. We like the kindness that doesn't cost us a lot. But what God's kindness does is it calls us to seek out others intentionally who we can bestow kindness upon. Those people who may be our enemies, those people who we may look at and say, they're not deserving of kindness whatsoever. He, he calls us to bestow kindness on people in a way that it actually costs us something. Because we shower kindness on others, not because they're deserving, but because God has first shown kindness to us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, our relationship compels us to lead lives of kindness, to not actually wait for people to come to us with requests of, health, for, of help, but out of the overflow of the gospel to seek to give kindness to other people. Eugene Peterson said this. He said, the gospel miracle is that human beings like us from time to time evade the temptations of power and the brittleness of success and actually manage to vulnerably love another person who has all the potential of turning on us and rejecting us. Every time such love is ventured, another piece of the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom of God is made credible. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in a, in a large family so that whenever we had um, big family get-togethers, there would be the grown-up table and then there would be the kids' table. And I can remember sitting at the kids' table, arching my neck and looking over at the grown-up's table and thinking, I wonder what they're talking about over there. I remember arching my neck thinking, is their food over there better than the food that I have at my table? And then I can remember one day where I was finally a grown-up. And I was able to gain access to the grown-up table and sit at the table with all the adults. And I can remember at that moment feeling incredibly grown-up and immediately feeling superior to everyone else that had to sit at the kids' table. The question for us is how do we gain access to that one great table? 
You see, it's no surprise that the scriptures describe heaven as a great banquet where we will all sit and feast on the full delights of heaven. So the question is, how do we get a seat at that table? Well, the answer is not because we deserved it. Sin has crippled us. It has sent us into hiding. But the good news of the gospel is that God seeks us out in kindness and he bestows grace on us. He gives us a place at the table that can never, ever be taken away. And all this is yours. All this is mine in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In a relationship with the one who allowed himself to be bruised and beaten and killed on our behalf. Because it cost him everything to secure that relationship with us. But he doesn't just give us this overwhelming grace in order for you and I to hoard it. In order for you and I to just collect it and keep it all to ourselves. Instead, he sends us out into the world to proclaim and demonstrate the kindness of God.